Welcome to NTD Evening News. Our top story tonight, the Supreme Court could soon weigh in on former President Trump's federal election criminal case. How a rare bid from special counsel Jack Smith could decide whether Trump would be tried before the 2024 race. Iris Tau reports from Washington, D.C. Over in Iowa, Trump's support is growing. A local poll says a majority of Republican caucus goers chose Trump as their top pick. But are any of the other candidates pulling closer? Arlene Richards dives in. An official full House vote on the impeachment inquiry into President Biden coming this week, as Hunter Biden is due for a deposition. But will he show up? Melina Weiskup from Capitol Hill. Members of the Air Force facing disciplinary action. What was their involvement in a massive classified documents leak? Officials in Tennessee are assessing damage after storms and tornadoes kill at least six people over the weekend. Nashville Mayor Freddie O'Connell calls the destruction heartbreaking. The head of the University of Pennsylvania resigned as pressure mounts for Harvard's leader to do the same, following her comments to Congress on anti-Semitic speech on campus. Argentina's new president promises economic shock therapy as he wastes no time slashing government agencies. Tens of thousands took to the streets to celebrate his inauguration. Arian Pazdar is in Buenos Aires. This is NTD Evening News. Live from our NTD Global Headquarters in New York City. Here is Tiffany Meyer. Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. Special Counsel Jack Smith is going directly to the Supreme Court, attempting to expedite the prosecution of former President Trump. That says Trump is claiming presidential immunity in the election case surrounding the 2020 election. NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao is at the Supreme Court with more on what the special counsel is doing and how it could impact the timeline of the cases against Trump. So in a rare move today, special counsel Jack Smith is asking the Supreme Court to immediately weigh in on Trump's argument that he has presidential immunity for his actions while in office, specifically those relating to the 2020 election. In his petition letter, Jack Smith says his extraordinary request is to prevent any delay and make sure that Trump's trial, which is currently scheduled for March 2024, can move forward as quickly as possible. Trump's team right now is currently seeking to halt the 2020 election case by appealing a D.C. court ruling that's against Trump's claim that he has presidential immunity. But if Jack Smith's request actually succeeds, it will basically present the ultimate question when it comes to Trump's immunity directly to the Supreme Court and circumvent the entire regular process through the appeals court. And of course, it will also mark the first time that the Supreme Court gets to weigh in directly on Trump's prosecutions, which could actually come as soon as in just a few weeks if the Supreme Court actually decides size to step in. So former President Trump has yet to personally directly respond to today's move by the special counsel. But we know that Trump has long criticized Jack Smith, calling him deranged and also a Trump hating prosecutor. Meanwhile, the White House today again warned of a threat to democracy, citing Trump's recent comments when it comes to a dictator. Trump, meanwhile, said this over the weekend. Watch. But no, I'm not a threat. I will save democracy. The threat is crooked Joe Biden. That's the threat. And they think that the threat to democracy, and that's what it is, it's a hoax. It's a new, we call it now, the threat 
to democracy hoax. Trump, meanwhile, is vowing to fight all the way to the Supreme Court when it comes to a gag order imposed on him in this federal 2020 election case. Back to you. And former President Trump says he will no longer testify in the civil fraud case against him in New York. Trump was expected to testify for a second time today in his own defense after prosecutors questioned him last month. In a Truth Social post yesterday, Trump said he had already provided successful testimony. He again denied any wrongdoing and called the trial election interference. He accused the attorney general of having no case. New York Attorney General Letitia James is seeking $250 million in damages and wants to bar Trump from doing business in the state. A pre-trial ruling already found Trump liable for fraud. The trial will determine the penalties that Trump will need to pay. Trump's defense has been presenting its case with the help of outside experts. The last expert witness is NYU accounting professor Eli Bartoff. He will continue testifying through Tuesday. Former President Trump is the top pick among Iowa Republicans. A local poll shows the majority of likely caucus goers would pick him over the other Republican nominees. NTD's Arlene Richards has the details. For the first time in Iowa, support for former President Trump jumped about 50 percent in December. The Des Moines Register NBC News Mediacom poll, considered to be the most accurate poll in Iowa, finds Trump with 51 percent support among likely caucus goers. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is a distant second at 19 percent. And Nikki Haley follows closely in the third position at 16 percent. The poll surveyed about 500 likely Republican caucus goers. It was conducted December 2nd to 7 and has a margin of error of plus or minus 4.4 percentage points. Support for Trump is up from 43 percent in an October Iowa poll. DeSantis only picked up three points. He hasn't made measurable momentum in the Iowa race despite receiving an endorsement from the state's governor or after his debate with California Governor Gavin Newsom. With Trump the clear front-runner, DeSantis and Haley seem to be in a race for second place. DeSantis criticized his second-place rival's campaign messaging at a recent event in Iowa. Uh, you can't have Hawkeye Haley here saying she's conservative, and then uh, more nuanced Nikki appealing to independents and, and liberals in New Hampshire. Uh, that doesn't work. you got to have the same message everywhere. Haley jumped to 16 percent between August and October. Her support grew from 6 percent following well-received debate performances. In recent weeks, she snagged a major endorsement from Americans for Prosperity Action, part of the Koch brothers' political network. Yet she didn't get a boost in the most recent poll. At a recent Iowa rally, Haley took shots at Trump. So there's chaos all around us, but what I know is you don't defeat Democrat chaos with Republican chaos. And that's what Donald Trump gives us. According to an analysis of state polling averages conducted by website Race to the White House, the Republican Party is on track to win 301 electoral college votes in the 2024 presidential election, far exceeding the 270 that's needed to win. President Biden is projected to win 235 electoral college votes. Arlene Richards, NTD News. 
New Hampshire resident Tyler Anderson, age 30, has been charged with sending threatening messages targeting GOP presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy. Last week, Anderson received a text message publicizing a campaign event. He allegedly responded with a text saying, quote, great, another opportunity for me to blow his brains out. A spokesperson for Ramaswamy confirmed to Axios that he was the targeted candidate. The FBI said they found additional threatening text messages on Anderson's phone dated on or around December 6th. They were allegedly sent to a different presidential candidate. Former New York City Mayor and Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani appeared in a Washington, D.C. court today, a civil defamation trial over his claims about fraud in the 2020 election is kicking off. Andrea Shea Moss and her mother Ruby Freeman are two election workers in Fulton County, Georgia. They sued Giuliani for defamation. This is after he accused them of working to rig the 2020 presidential election against Trump. A federal judge has already determined that Giuliani is liable for defamation. And jury selection was completed today. The only question for the jury is how much Giuliani will owe in damages. The two election workers are expected to testify at the trial, which is due to conclude this week. Giuliani may also take the witness stand. His lawyer intends to argue that Giuliani's remarks had a minimal connection to the harm the two election workers suffered. Lawmakers returned to Capitol Hill today with high-stakes items on the agenda, a visit from Ukraine's president and a full House vote to authorize the impeachment inquiry into President Biden. This as his son faces a Wednesday deadline for a closed-door testimony before the House Oversight Committee. NTD's Melina Weiskup reports. Trying to find evidence that President Biden has knowingly had a hand in his son's foreign business deals has long been the focus of three committee chairmen charged with tracing the facts in the impeachment inquiry into the president. But up until now, the House has not authorized by a full House vote that impeachment inquiry. And this week, that's likely to change with Republican House leadership setting up a vote saying they have the support from their entire Republican conference to get this done, arguing that this is the next step they need to take to get their hands on the evidence that they need, as well as back up their arguments should their subpoenas be challenged in court. They're refusing to turn over key witnesses to allow them to testify as they've been subpoenaed. When the subpoenas are challenged in court, we'll be at the apex of our constitutional authority. This comes as Hunter Biden is due for a closed-door deposition this Wednesday. Otherwise, he'll face contempt of Congress charges. Up until now, his lawyers have insisted that he does a public testimony instead of a private one. But the Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer is rejecting that proposal, instead insisting that he comply with the subpoena as it's written now, to the dismay of his Democrats counterpart. He said he doesn't like it because he basically doesn't trust his own members to be able to ask questions effectively. He wants lawyers to do it. Although Comer has left the door open for Hunter Biden to come back and give a public testimony after this closed door session. And in addition to this action on the Biden family, Congress is also facing renewed pressure to act on Ukraine aid amid a stalemate that continues between the House and the Senate. President Vladimir Zelensky will be meeting with the White House senators and House Speaker Mike Johnson tomorrow. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Fifteen members of the military facing discipline for dereliction of duty. What they did? Failing to stop Massachusetts Air National Guardsman Jack DeShira from accessing classified documents.
The Air Force Inspector General released the results of an investigation into the leak. They found Dixira's unit failed to take proper action after becoming aware of his intelligence-seeking activities, and that enabled Dixira to leak the classified Pentagon documents. But the report says the unit wasn't aware of the leaks. The probe also found that the Shira's unit leadership was not vigilant in overseeing its members' conduct. Fifteen individuals face disciplinary and other administrative actions as a result. Officials in Tennessee are assessing the damage after tornadoes and strong storms tore across the state on Saturday. The storms killed at least six people and injured 50 more. Multiple buildings were also destroyed. Severe storms and tornadoes in Tennessee killed at least six people over the weekend and left a trail of destruction. One tornado was caught on video by an eyewitness as it moved over Madison, Tennessee, causing electrical flashes and an explosion. Oh my God. Video from Clarksville, one of the hardest hit areas, showed wrecked buildings and debris scattered along the road as slow-moving traffic drove by. I hope nobody was in those houses. Officials said three people, including a child, were killed in Montgomery County, where Clarksville is located, and 23 people were being treated at the hospital. Three more deaths were reported in the suburbs of Nashville, according to the city's Office of Emergency Management. Police said a toddler was one of the three victims in the Nashville area. Heartbreaking day. Nashville Mayor Freddie O'Connell said emergency crews were still working to restore power. We have been working very closely with Nashville Electric Service. They are still trying to restore power to 26,000 Nashvillians. Their crews have been working around the clock uh, to get impacted Nashvillians back online as quickly as they can. In total so far, our responders have identified 22 structures that have collapsed as a result of the storm, and countless others have sustained significant damage. More than 40,000 people in Tennessee were left without power as of Sunday morning, according to the website poweroutage.us. Turning now to international news, Israeli tanks trying to push further west in their battle against Hamas in and around Khan Yunus today. Israel says the city is the main stronghold of the terrorists. Entity's Daniel Monahan has the latest on the war in Gaza. The Israeli military says it has been fighting terrorists house to house in Han Yunus as Israel refocuses its war effort to the south. Han Yunus is the main city in the southern Gaza Strip with a population of over 600,000. The Israeli military said Sunday that dozens of terrorists had surrendered to Israeli forces. There are a great many terrorists who have surrendered there. And this is a significant thing because these are signs that terrorists who are in difficult strongholds have decided to surrender. This is a very important thing. Footage shows dozens of detainees stripped to their underwear. Israeli officials say that's to make sure they aren't hiding explosives. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu discussed the Hamas surrenders on Sunday, calling it the beginning of the end for the terrorist group. Netanyahu urged more to hand over their guns and not to die for Hamas leader Yahya Sinwar. On Friday, the United States vetoed a UN Security Council proposal demanding an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. Deputy U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Robert Wood called the resolution a recipe for disaster. A senior Hamas official recently stated 
the group intends to repeat the vile acts of October 7, quote, again and again and again, unquote. And yet, this resolution essentially says Israel should just tolerate this. Secretary of State Antony Blinken on Sunday criticized those who have not forcefully condemned the sexual violence committed by Hamas on October 7th, speaking on CNN. But the uh, sexual violence that uh, we saw on October 7th uh, is beyond anything that, uh, that I've seen either. Meanwhile, over 100 aid trucks reportedly reached Gaza on Saturday. But will ordinary Gaza residents get it? The Israeli Defense Forces published a video on X they say shows Hamas members beating civilians and stealing such aid. And an elderly woman told an Al Jazeera reporter that the aid is being stolen by Hamas. Meanwhile, fighting between Israel and Iran-backed Hezbollah in Lebanon is causing fears of the war spreading. And Syria's army reported it had shot down Israeli missiles fired towards the capital Damascus on Sunday evening. Reuters says the Israeli army declined to comment on the report. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. As UPenn grapples with the resignation of its president and the potential loss of funding, Harvard is fighting to keep its leader in place. Harvard President Claudine Gay continues to have the support of more than 500 faculty members as calls for her resignation grow. Gay has come under fire for her testimony in response to anti-Semitism on the Ivy League campus. Her answer did not sit well with some lawmakers and donors who are putting pressure on her to resign. Many say that Gay failed to say that her students' calls for the genocide of Jews violated school policy. Gay has since apologized for her response. Javier Millet is the new president of Argentina. Some are describing him as the Argentine version of former President Trump. The Economist is taking over the role as Argentines are desperate for change, battling extreme inflation, which is affecting the lives of millions. Antides Arian Pastar was in Buenos Aires on Sunday for Millet's inauguration. Around a million people were expected to be here in Buenos Aires, Argentina today to watch the inauguration of Argentina's new president, Javier Millet. Now, I spoke to some of these supporters and they tell me they have high hopes and expectations for their next leader. Take a look. Generations of corrupt politicians have been robbing from the people of Argentina. But Javier Millet brings us a new promise. He brings us happiness. Self-described capitalist Javier Millet won with the widest margin of victory in a presidential race since Argentina's return to democracy 40 years ago. This graph shows the steep rise of Argentina's inflation, affecting millions of people. At his inauguration speech on Sunday, Millet warned he'll implement what he called shock therapy to fix the economy. He says this will have a negative impact on the economy at first. There is no other alternative to adjustment and there is no other alternative to shock. Naturally, this will have a negative impact on the level of activity, employment, real wages. As of Monday, the details of the shock therapy are not clear yet. Millet's team says they will speak on it on Tuesday. Just hours after his inauguration on Sunday, Millet used executive powers to slash the number of his cabinet ministers in half. 
That's after he ran on a campaign platform proposing a so-called chainsaw plan, promising to cut government spending. Ministerio de las Mujeres y Género y Diversidad, afuera. Ministerio de Obras Públicas, afuera. This Millet supporter put Argentina's economical situation into perspective, comparing their inflation to the one we're seeing in the U.S. The U.S. currently has 7% inflation over an entire year. We have 12% in a single month. Our salaries don't keep up with this inflation. So all of a sudden, you realize that the things you were able to buy before, you just can't afford anymore. She added that she and her husband usually support the leftist party that was in power for decades, but they voted for Millet due to the economy. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. Hopes are high, but the question remains, can Javier Millet bring significant change to Argentina? NTD's Ariane Pastar spoke with a constitutional lawyer and the former president of the Argentine Association of Constitutional Law. Dana Sapsai, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm very happy to be with you as well. Daniel, here in Argentina, it seems as if the people, they're really hoping that Millet can turn the country around now that he's become the president. What do you think? Do you think he can do that? I think that it won't be easy, but anyway, I think that his purposes are very important and we can change the re regime, in fact, and to switch from a populist regime to a popular liberal regime. Congress is a big part, of course, so, right? Do you think sure. Congress would be behind Mila's ideas? Well, I hope so, because you know that he has, uh, he got an extraordinary popular vote, but at the same time, he has very few legislators in both chambers, the Senate and uh, the Chamber of Deputies, representatives for the United States. So he will need to make many alliances I think that at the beginning, at least in the first year, he will get the support because uh, particularly most Peronists know what uh, people want and so they don't want to go against this will. Of course Argentina was invited to join yeah. BRICS which contains countries like Russia and China. Russia, of course, has a war going on in Ukraine, while China is very close to Hamas. They have very strong ties. Now, Mila is probably taking the exact other way, you know, being close to the United States, being close to Israel. So how can he swing to Ukraine? And to Ukraine, exactly, not joining the Russia and China side. So how can his win affect the geopolitical situation overall, and maybe specifically these conflicts you're seeing right now? Well, this is going to change completely. It's the first time, you know, that the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, now is in Argentina. It's the first time he comes to a Latin American country. And that is very important to him and to the United States, because most uh, Latin American countries were for Putin, very close to Putin. So for him to come for the first time in Latin America, where he hasn't been supported, it's very, very important, I think. Dennis Upside, thank yeah, you so much. You are a very good Coming up, protesters in San Francisco raise awareness about the Chinese Communist Party's abuses 75 years after the UN pledged to uphold human rights. And our guest sheds light on one of the greatest human rights abuses happening in our day. Hear what he has to say about forced organ harvesting in China after the break here on NTD News.
Welcome back. Sunday was the 75th anniversary of International Human Rights Day. Events in California highlighted ongoing abuses by the Chinese Communist Party. NTD's Jason Blair reports. In 1948, the United Nations declared December 10th as International Human Rights Day. In San Francisco, where the UN was formed, protesters gathered in front of the Chinese consulate. One protester said it's important for people in free countries to make noise about human rights abuses. Because the people who are actually oppressed, they're not able to speak up. There were multiple groups represented, all of them calling out the ruling government of China, the Chinese Communist Party, for their human rights abuses and international bully tactics. The Chinese government have violated several times with the uh, cultural genocide of Tibet, with the occupation of East Turkestan, with the incarceration of the Muslims, even with the occupation of Hong Kong. There were groups representing communities from China, Tibet, the Philippines, Vietnam, Hong Kong, Taiwan, and the Uyghurs in East Turkestan. We have actually lots of Tibetans who actually fled Tibet and came here and who have the actual experience of how they were being treated. And not only Tibetans, uh, there are lots of Uyghurs people who, who were in the forced camps. Also in California, a new statue was unveiled in Liberty Sculpture Park. It's a remembrance of the hundreds of thousands who fled from China to Hong Kong in the 1970s. At the time, Hong Kong was a territory of the United Kingdom. Liberty Sculpture Park has numerous statues and memorials for victims of the Chinese Communist Party. All the people who are being here in a free country come here together to, in a memory and to stand united for them that they're not alone and all the oppression against Tibetans and the Uyghurs and the Hong Kongers and Taiwanese that we stand together with them. Reporting in California, Jason Blair, NTD News. Joining us now to discuss a heinous human rights abuse happening in the present day, we have Dr. Weldon Gilcrease. He's Deputy Director at Doctors Against Forced Organ Harvesting. Weldon Gilcrease, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, Tiffany. Now, it's been 75 years since the UN adopted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. This was to prevent crimes against humanity following the Holocaust. Now, you just led a panel on how the world is still falling short. Tell us about that. Yeah, there's, throughout the world, there are places in just about every corner of the world and just about every day where this does fall short. But I think one of the biggest places where this has fallen short is in China. Um, Beginning in 1999, the, the Chinese Communist Party cracked down on Falun Gong practitioners who numbered in the 70 to 100 million range, really setting in motion a, a huge number of people that were in prison or detained at any given time. About 450,000 to a million Falun Gong practitioners were in prisons and labor camps and detention centers. And then in 2006, there were allegations that they were being medically tested and typed as they were being as they were in the prison system, and then being killed on demand for organ transplant. So this is this is a, a, a huge number of of people, uh, Uyghurs and House Christians, Tibetans have likely also been uh, uh, um, involved in forced organ harvesting, but. Falun Gong, uh, by by and large, are the the major group that have been uh, subjected to to essentially being killed and cut open for their organs, and the the data has just continued to compile over the the last seventeen years that this hasn't stopped and continues to this day. 
I want to expand on that. So when it comes to this forced organ harvesting that's happening inside China, help us understand how is this different from, say, organ trafficking? Yeah, so when I think of organ trafficking, I think of a rogue number of medical uh, personnel in different countries throughout the world that take somebody and pay a small sum for a kidney. Usually the the victim isn't killed in the process, and it's in exchange for money. Now, this is against most principles and guiding principles within organ transplant. But in China, it's different. This is government-sanctioned, government-organized. The, the only place in the world, I think, that this can happen with the volume of people that they have, the connection that they have outside of their, their own country, uh, is, is China, where the government basically has its hand in just about every facet of society, and that includes the prisons, that includes the, the medical system. And given China's opaque or lack of transparency when it comes to data, how do we know that this is happening? I think you mentioned 2006. What are we seeing? Yeah, so th there, there was a, a report in 2006 that came out by David Matus and David Kilgore. There was another 680-page report that came out in 2016. And then uh, an international tribunal, the China Tribunal, as, as it was coined, also looked at data over a year and interviewed over 50 people. And they published their final report in, in, in 2020. Essentially, what you're looking at is a lot of different pieces of data over thousands of pieces of data that build a picture. And that picture is that there's instant demand to organs within China. People were paying money to go and have a transplant uh, almost on demand. They, they would be booked in two weeks or four weeks for, for example, a liver transplant. And so the data really comes from where is China having this instant access to, to, to organs? China historically, there's a Confucian ideal that, that the body is to stay intact into the next life. And so China has never really had an organ donation or distribution system that's been successful. They tried to set one up um, at various times. And in 2015, they said that they have one. But as we've seen in, in my organization, Doctors Against Forced Organ Harvesting, has pointed out, most of this, this data is not reliable data. It's falsified data. And just quickly on the timeline, how long does it normally take to get, say, one of those organs? Yeah, it's a good question. For example, in the United States, it depends on how ill you are, but let's just take a liver transplant. Uh, you might be on a waiting list for at least a year to two years. And so instant demand, you know, one, one example that happened during COVID was uh, there was a publication in May of 2020 from China where two people that were dying of COVID um, were essentially registered on the donation list or the so-called donation list. And within three or four days, both of them had double lung transplants. So somebody, uh, th there's there's no way unless you just have a sea of humanity that have been typed and are, are essentially waiting to die for their organs. And so the other piece of data to go back to your question is uh, Falun Gong practitioners as they were being detained and put into to, to prisons and labor camps, the same time they were being tortured, they were being medically tested. And as the data has, has shown us in the last 17 years, they were being medically tested essentially to be the, the organ bank for, for China. 
That is incredible. And you mentioned that you are part of the medical ethics group Doctors Against Forced Organ Harvesting, asking more people to speak out against this. What can people do? There's a lot we can do. I think medical societies should publish statements on forced organ harvesting. The Association of American Physicians and Surgeons has done so on July 4th of this year. Um, I think the International Society of Heart and Lung Transplant uh, had a position statement last year in 2022. I think as medical societies, we can take a stance. I think as individuals and doctors, the most important thing is educating us and knowing that this is happening. It's a lot of data to get through. If you look at just the three reports that I mentioned, the 2006 Madison and Kilgore report, the 2016 update, it was titled The Slaughter, Bloody Harvest, and Update, and the 2020 publication by the China Tribunal, that's well over 1,400 pages of data. So it's a lot to get through. But there are summaries. There are plenty of resources on the Internet. Doctors Against Forced Organ Harvesting, we have a website, dafo.org and transplantabuse.org has a website where you can educate yourself. So I think as the individual, it's really about educating yourself. I think as medical societies, we really do need to take a stance. Well, then Gilcrease, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Coming up, the United Nations wants to change what you eat. And Congressman Mike Flood is taking action. He tells us why we shouldn't follow the UN's dietary advice. And from Fox to X to his own streaming service, Tucker Carlson launches his own network. Why is he doing it and what is he offering to viewers? We'll give you a look after the break. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some today's top headlines. Special Counsel Jack Smith asked the Supreme Court to quickly rule whether former President Trump is immune from prosecution. Smith is bypassing a federal appeals court and trying to keep the federal election case moving. A new poll by NBC shows Trump widening his lead over GOP rivals in Iowa to 51 percent. Another poll by CNN finds him leading President Biden in Michigan and Georgia. The Air Force disciplined 15 members for dereliction of duty. An investigation found they didn't do enough when they learned that Airman Jack DeShira was seeking access to classified Pentagon files. A series of powerful tornadoes and storms tore through Tennessee, killing at least six people. The tornadoes destroyed hundreds of homes and left thousands displaced or without power. Harvard President Claudine Gay is facing pressure to resign due to her testimony in Congress on anti-Semitism. The UPenn president has already resigned after facing similar backlash. The United Nations is calling on Americans to cut back on eating meat to reduce carbon emissions. And Congressman Mike Flood of Nebraska isn't too happy about it. He's joining us now to discuss why he thinks this would be bad for Americans and for the nation as a whole. Congressman Mike Flood, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. To begin, you just introduced a resolution today condemning the UN for calling on Americans to stop eating meat. Tell us about that. Well, world leaders have been meeting in Dubai for the uh, uh, COP28 over the last couple of weeks. Uh, this is a conference that the UN 
host annually to talk about climate change. And now the global elites are getting together and they've decided that people need to really reduce the amount of uh, beef that they eat uh, to, to address issues with climate change. And as a lifelong Nebraskan, somebody that's been born and raised and lived next to farmers and ranchers, the true environmentalists live in places like Nebraska. And my resolution basically calls this out and says the U.S. does not support what they're talking about in Dubai. And Congressman, we're seeing the Netherlands and Ireland proposing culling their cow populations in the name of cutting greenhouse gases. What would banning meat do in terms of global security? Well, the UN plans, the, the, the plans that the UN has for your diet would be nothing short of a disaster for not only people's health, but also food security worldwide. Uh, I'm opposed to this. Reducing meat construction and consumption would eliminate jobs, wipe out farms, ranches, and feed that uh, underpin our rural communities and our way of life. And the, the reality is, and it, coming from uh, Nebraska, we certainly understand this, meat is nutrient-rich source of protein that is tasty and efficiently delivers calories and vitamins, greatly contributing to the world's food security. And when, when you think about where uh, efforts like this go in Dubai. You've got a bunch of global elites sitting around the table deciding what they're going to do for everybody else. If you come to my home state of Nebraska, you'll see that we're good stewards of the land. Uh, we want nothing bad to happen to the environment. And we've been raising cows out here for centuries, and it's a good way of life. And beef is, uh, you know, basically consumed all over the world. Now, in terms of what the U.N. wants, your colleague Congressman Ashley Henson has said that, quote, this is a thinly veiled attempt by China to undermine U.S. agriculture, as well as the Iowa farmers who produce high quality meat. Adding the impact of the CCP infiltrating the U.N. is clear. They can strongly call for Americans to stop eating meat, but can't strongly condemn Hamas for their human rights atrocities in Israel. How does this move by the U.N. play into China and geopolitics more broadly? Well, it's been well documented that the CCP works every single day as they get up to start their day on ways to uh, eliminate the United States as the sole superpower in the world. And uh, they are in our cornfields trying to steal uh, the research that we've done in uh, seed production. They are in our rural communities uh, buying up land next to Air Force bases and uh, military operations. So it, it should come as no surprise that China would want to uh, maneuver itself into a place where Americans are discouraged to eat beef, where people around the world are discouraged to eat beef. Uh, meanwhile, uh, China's importing some of our beef. <laughs> you know, like uh, countries rely on what we're doing. It, it is a source of uh, not only economic development for the United States, it speaks to our ability to feed the world. And if we were to stop producing the amount of beef that we produce, um, it would ripple across the rest of the world in, in a very negative way. So uh, the idea that China is behind some of this certainly isn't surprising. Some of the recent votes of the UN kind of tell you where they're at and how they straddle uh, these countries that have really poor human rights records like they do themselves. Um, I think America is doing the right thing by standing up for itself and saying, no, not today. We're not going to do this to our beef producers. And Congressman, given all that's at stake that you just laid out, what else can Americans do besides your resolution to stand up for this? 
well, go out and buy some uh, some beef, and uh, it's what's for dinner. You know, make it every night. Uh, make sure it's part of your routine. Um, at the end of the day, let your member of Congress know. Let your state legislator know. Let the leaders of your state know that you don't want uh, a, a folks around a table in Dubai telling you what we can and cannot eat in the United States of America, and that uh, that the farmers and ranchers that make this happen they need to be celebrated, not scrutinized. Congressman Mike Flood, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Have a good day. Former Fox News host Tucker Carlson launched his own subscription streaming service today. For $9 a month, you can see his exclusive interviews, talks, and videos. Entity's Emma Sheep tells us more. Something big is coming. You can probably feel it. The Tucker Carlson Network is live starting today. For $9 a month or $72 a year, the streaming service offers multiple shows, including interviews and monologues. Shows include the Tucker Carlson Encounter, which contains interviews like the ones he's already posted on X, Tucker Carlson Uncensored, where he analyzes the news of the day, and the Sworn Enemy Tour, where Carlson gives speeches about the issues America is facing. How are you going to respond to all of this? The first step is knowing what's actually happening. That's not easy. Who's an ally? Who's an enemy? You can't always tell. What's true and what's a lie? Carlson says he founded the service because he thinks news coverage has become a tool of repression and control. He says reporters are hiding essential information and journalists act as censors. He believes telling the truth is the way to solve this. Tucker Carlson right now is the hottest name in the media. Everybody wants to know what his thoughts are pertaining to anything and everything. Professional broadcaster Greg Lanelli says that after the COVID pandemic, people started trusting the news media less. He says that whether you think Carlson is right or wrong, his voice is different from all the other voices people are used to hearing. As long as people feel like they haven't been told the truth in some instances, they're going to look for non-traditional outlets to get their news. And this should be, in many ways, a wake-up call to your traditional outlets, because Tucker Carlson's going to get a big number. Lanelli says many traditional media voices have been discredited over the years. This has been brought to light with social media, so he believes Carlson's streaming service will do well. It's not going to take significant numbers of people to start subscribing. You know, at whether you're doing the nine dollars a month or you're doing the one-year package at seventy-two dollars. You know, that amount of money for 100,000 subscribers, 200,000 subscribers, it suddenly provides a lot of money that Tucker can use to potentially add more talent. Social media professor Andrew Selipak says that Carlson could eventually create an entire media company and that this could significantly change the media landscape. Emma Shi, NTD News. Coming up in baseball news, what did Shohei Otani have to do with the Toronto Blue Jays becoming a popular World Series bet? We'll have NTD's Dave Martin in the studio to discuss when we return. Welcome back. And now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, plenty of sports going on, but let's start with baseball. Shohei Otani agreed to a record-breaking $700 million contract with the Los Angeles Dodgers on Saturday. What's your reaction to all this? Yeah, I was stunned. I mean, not that he went to the Dodgers, but the $700 million, despite the fact that he's got an injury that's going to prevent him from pitching next year. I mean, the next biggest contract is $425 million. This is like 50% bigger. Now, you know, heading into the season, it, the thinking was maybe he'd get $500 million. You know, by the All-Star break, when it was apparent he was going to win another MVP award, we were thinking $600, maybe $700 million. Then he gets injured, misses the rest of the season as a pitcher, and is going to miss next year as a pitcher. 
we're back to thinking 500 million. Uh, so I can't imagine what he would have got had he stayed healthy, you know, 800 million. Now, we haven't seen yet how much this money is going to be deferred. I reports a significant amount could be. Either way, the Dodgers got the best player in the game, but uh, it definitely cost them. It's a lot of money for sure. Now, on Friday, the day before all this happened, there were reports that he was on his way to Toronto to sign with the Blue Jays. What happened there? Yeah, there were a whole lot of reports that he was taking a private jet there. In fact, it was so credible that there were a whole bunch of bets being placed on Toronto to win next year's World Series. So much so that at Bet MGM Sportsbooks, they actually moved up Toronto's World Series odds all the way from 15 to 1 to 8 to 1. Now, apparently, the, the private jet people thought he was on actually had someone from the show Shark Tank instead. Uh, now, I don't blame people for jumping on the bandwagon on this, though. I mean, his whole free agency was shrouded in absolute secrecy. Uh, there had been some rumors he was interested in Toronto, but maybe the Blue Jays didn't have $700 million for him. It's a lot of money now. Shifting gears to the NFL, the Kansas City Chiefs lost to the Buffalo Bills after an apparent offsides penalty wiped out what would have been the winning touchdown late in the game. Now, replay seemed to confirm the call was correct, yet the Chiefs were pretty upset. What was their argument? Yeah, they said they weren't given a warning. I mean, this was a, for one, this is a fantastic play that was called back. Travis Kelsey catches the pass, goes 25 yards, laterals the receiver, Kadarius Toney, runs it in for an apparent touchdown. A very risky play. I'm sure they didn't draw it up that way, yet it seemed like they were going to win because of it. Unfortunately for them, it was called back. And the Chiefs are saying usually a player gets warned about lining up off sides, and if it persists, then they call it. Now, this is part of the game that fans really wouldn't know about, but I have heard this from other players before. Uh, apparently, there was no warning this time. I've never seen Patrick Mahomes so upset at the refs. Now, if you watch it on TV, it does seem like a blatant offsides call, as he said. The referee crew said afterwards that, you know, they don't have to give someone a warning, especially if it's as blatant uh, as that one. I think it was made worse by the fact that it would have won the game and it was an incredible play. But uh, the Chiefs are in first place still, despite the loss. Well, now for some good news in basketball. USC freshman Bronny James, son of LeBron, made his collegiate debut on Sunday, just four months after suffering cardiac arrest. Now, although his team lost, what did you make of his performance? I mean, I thought he looked great. You know, uh, he's not as big as his dad, maybe like six inches shorter, but he had this one sequence where he did a chase down block from behind. It was like reminiscent of LeBron's. I mean, LeBron is especially famous for his chase down block in game seven of the 2016 finals. That basically won the title for Cleveland. I'm not going to put it in that level, though, of course, but for someone 6'3", it was quite a play. He also had a three-pointer. He played sparingly, of course, but really, it was a great story that he survived the medical scare, is back to playing competitively, and that his family uh, got to see him play finally. Well, Dave, as always, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Tiff. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.